0: Well, good evening everybody and welcome to Formation. If you are unaware of who I am, my name is Sam. Um, In fact, this is probably the first time that Edge has uh, let me loose on the microphone. Um, Oh, thank you. Um, Yeah, so if it doesn't happen again, I think we can make our own conclusions about that. But uh, thanks for coming along on this long weekend and uh, braving the weather and all that kind of stuff. formation is uh, if you haven't been to one of these before it's really a time where we get to um, listen to lace groaning apparently um, you done? <laughs> Good um, Now really a time where we get to talk about um, ideas without necessarily um, I guess feeling the need to arrive anywhere in particular. I guess it's the acknowledgement that a whole bunch of this of, of us in this room, Um, sit on very, very different places uh, when it comes to a bunch of issues that are linked uh, with Christianity, with spirituality, with Jesus, with the Bible. And so this is a time to explore those issues, but respectfully kind of, I think, acknowledge the the differences here. So, um, you know, some people in this room um, may be unsure about where they are with the Bible, unsure where they are with Jesus, unsure where they are with even the idea of God, and that's cool. We get to engage with those ideas in kind of a a non-threatening way with all those things in mind. So, some of the stuff we've done this year so far is uh, talk about um, what on earth did Jesus die for. We've looked at these themes here. So, uh, the first thing we looked at uh, was metaphors of the atonement, ways that we talk about the crucifixion and what Jesus did and the language we use around that to help us understand that and some of the main ways in which the crucifixion gets imagined and talked about um, today. Uh, The second time we talked about the circle of life and we talked about how life and death may be sort of woven into the fabric of life itself and so almost like the crucifixion was like an archetypal microcosm of what goes on in the universe all the time. Uh, The third time We talked about uh, God is dead theology and uh, what that means for God to die and if it has any sort of philosophical applications beyond that. Uh, Then last time we got together, we talked about uh, the execution of a non-violent revolutionary and uh, how Jesus was sort of seen as this threat politically and socially and in in his time and place and what it meant for someone to be killed in that kind of environment. So uh, as a revolutionary. And so today, it means that we're talking about scapegoats and the end of sacrifice. So what Frosty will be unpacking is, what does it mean if God offers himself up as a sacrifice uh, in a scapegoat kind of way? And so to start this off, what I thought I'd do is sort of go through uh, a little bit of uh, cultural scapegoating that goes on. So hopefully I'm not stealing any of your thunder here, but... The idea of the scapegoat really sort of um, appears in the Bible, in the Old Testament, uh, under Israel, when one of the uh, the traditions they had to deal with their sense of sin uh, was to uh, have this tradition called Yom Kippur, where they they took a goat um, and they took it into the wilderness and they sort of symbolically laid the sins of the people onto the goat. And sent it out. And it was a way of, I guess, transferring the guilt of the people, the sins of the people onto something else that became externalised so they can, you know, symbolically feel forgiven. So it's this idea that uh, human beings operate in a way, one of the ways that we deal with our sin is to, uh, I guess, externalise it. So we'll talk a little bit, I imagine Frosty's going to talk a little, a little bit about how that actually functioned, but you know, I want to talk about the ways in which that may function today. So to top this off, what I thought I'd do is something called a booometer, and um, what I'm going to show you is a series of six different people uh, in popular culture who um, are known to have done bad things, and uh, I think they uh, symbolise scapegoating here and now. So um, depending on how bad you think this person is, if you could boo really loudly if you think they're really bad, or Maybe do a little boo if you think they're okay. Maybe don't boo at all if you think they're actually okay. So who's our first one? Okay, Wayne Barnes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> for those of you that don't know, Wayne Barnes, well, I could tell you and then maybe we could do it again. Wayne Barnes was the referee, I think it was in the 2007 semi-final against France, who allowed them to p- play the forward pass and got us kicked out of the final. So, Wayne Barnes. Okay, pretty, yeah, okay. Now arguably the All Blacks didn't actually play that well, but luckily we can externalize all the guilt of our loss onto Wayne Barnes, so he becomes a good little scapegoat then. go Wayne's. all right, John Key. oh, we've got the lefties over here, okay. again John Key, an example of how government can uh, be scapegoated as the problem, okay, not, not a huge amount of booze there. It's nice to, nice to hear. Rob Bell. (laughs) Now, this is cheeky, all right, because I don't think he's a bad guy at all, but, um, you know, there are a lot of reasons we're struggling with doubt in the church and people falling away is because Rob Bell opened the door and now people don't believe in God at all. It's Rob Bell's fault, yeah. Good, not many boos there. Apart from you, that's fine. That's fine. Kardashians. (laughs) Oh... They, they are to blame, a lot of people say, for selfie culture, uh, for being narcissistic, um, for too much emphasis on eyebrows. But no, obviously people don't hate them that much. That's good, that's good. Yoko Ono, did she split the Beatles up? Yes. yes she did. <laughs> okay. No, no booze, do you want to try it again? <laughs> okay, very clear hater over here. Interesting take, okay. Donald Trump. Oh, see, there could be an argument made here. Is he symptomatic of America or is he the cause of a lot of problems we have today? Both. Okay, opened up a can of worms. Interesting to see how this one will work out as sort of tensions between countries uh, work each other out. You know, will he get continually blamed for that? Will Trumpism be the the where the finger gets pointed? But anyway, the last one I wanted to talk about was probably... The guy who is probably the most hated person in the world right now. So let's see how this one goes. Harvey Weinstein. No. No. I thought this one would be a big deal. Harvey Weinstein is the uh, the Hollywood producer mogul who's been uh, has had I think fifty plus allegations of sexual harassment or misconduct aimed at him throughout Hollywood. And um, Hollywood, now he's done done some bad stuff. He's done a lot of bad things. But what's interesting in Hollywood is that this kind of stuff has been going on for decades, right? There's been people being exploited and the uh, the casting couch being exploited for decades. And finally, someone really got pulled up for it. Harvey Weinstein got pulled up for it. And he's very, very guilty. But what's interesting is that everyone kind of knew this had been going on for a long time. And when it came to light and everyone... Outside of Hollywood also knew how bad it was, Um, a lot of the blame got put solely on Harvey Weinstein. Now, this is actually Hollywood's problem. They had a problem with sexual misconduct and harassment and systems of abuse. But very conveniently, all the blame kind of got directed at this guy. And it was really interesting when Oprah stood up and did her thing at the... uh, awards ceremony, she kind of stood up and said, yeah, actually it's all people like Weinstein's fault. And then she sort of forgave Hollywood as the high priest of Hollywood. But it's worked in the sense that Hollywood could externalise all their guilt and blame onto this one man. So scapegoating is alive and well today. And even though we might not think about it in religious terms, It's a very interesting conversation. Why do we feel the need to externalise our guilt all the time? Why do we need to push our blame onto another so we can feel better about ourselves? So I guess the question then becomes, yay, oh yeah, awkward if there was a boo for that one, eh? Didn't think about that. Yeah, yeah, the game is finished. Um, The question then becomes, what does it mean for God to willingly become a scapegoat? One that sort of the guilt and blame got put on them out of sort of as a choice. And so that sort of leads us nicely, hopefully, into what Frosty's about to talk about, the scapegoating. Take it away, Frosty. Thanks, Sam.
1: Thanks, Ben. Hey there. Hi. This is a diet. You can talk back to me. It's okay. Um, Well... Lovely to see you, and uh, as, as Sam has kind of brought us into the space tonight, we are, we are talking about scapegoats and how this um, helps us to think through what happens in the Jesus story, um, what it has to do with sacrificial ritual, uh, and how that helps us to make sense of our own faith now. So that's what we're going to try and do, and we'll see how we go. Uh, I'm going to talk through a few ideas uh, to put them out there uh, and then we're going to have some reflection and some discussion and some conversation. We're going to finish tonight with Eucharist and and a meal together. So that's the direction of the evening. And um, I think that's going to be good. Yeah? Interestingly, when when the Jesus image goes up and Sam says, well, if we booed, that would be awkward. The reality is um, before he's crucified, that's exactly, of course, what happens. He's put up in front of the people and there's essentially a bull almost between him and Barabbas, another criminal, uh, to try and decide what we wanted to do with these individuals. So um, we might be going, yay, but that's because we already think about Jesus differently than they did, right? Okay, so we can, if we, th- if we think about the term sacrifice, it's, um, especially if we think about blood sacrifice of some kind, that's a pretty intense idea, isn't it? I think. Um, you know, if you find out your neighbour's been um, doing some animal sacrifice next door, it's usually a bad sign. You don't think, oh, good, some people just expressing their faith and religion. Uh, it's it's not a pleasant idea, actually. And, and in many respects in the modern world, we think about it as quite a uh, superstitious idea, um, especially compared with science. You know, it's this ancient primitive practice where... Uh, you sacrifice all of this stuff, you kill it, whether it be animals or whether it be children or whether it be virgins or whether it be criminals, uh, and it makes everything okay again. It makes the gods happy with you or at least less angry with you, and it, it seems to bring some sense of order and calm to society. But now that we are modern, grown-up people, now uh, we don't need to do that anymore. That seems a bit silly as a way to try and make things right in the world. Um, And yet it's this sacrificial language that's so much of what uh, frames the way people talk about Jesus' death and the meaning of it in the New Testament. And so we're left with this problem, I think, in the modern world, which is uh, a lot of the ways that the Bible talks about or a lot of the language and a lot of the ideas it's engaging with as it talks about the meaning of Jesus' death now seem really silly and outdated to modern society. And we're like, what is this even? How do we even approach the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection now in the 21st century. Um, so uh, what we want to suggest tonight, I think, is that uh, maybe there's something else going on in the sacr- sacrificial tradition that helps us understand why Jesus' death still means something, still matters, and, uh, and how, as we were just kind of starting off tonight, how it's actually still playing out in, in our lives today. Cool? You with me? Yeah? Yeah? All right. Let's start by talking about this. Mimetic capacity. Um, Good. So, uh, René Girard um, has done a lot of uh, reflection, study, uh, and anthropological and philosophical um, theorising, really, about ancient human societies and the emergence of what we now call homo sapiens, human beings, uh, and that one of the things that happens that really shifts us from being just an animal, if you like, uh, to being human beings in the way that we understand and talk about them today, is one of the things that happens in that, in that process is our ability to, uh, to imitate others, um, to mirror others, and not just to mirror what they do and what they say, but to project and to, because we're developing internal consciousness, to start to come up with internally ideas about what the other person is thinking and believing and then reacting in kind according to that. So we've both got this developing inner consciousness in ourselves as well as an awareness of the consciousness of others. And and what we do is we mirror back and forth. And even if you've done early childhood development, which I have, haven't really, but I do know that... Um, Mirroring is like really important, and developmentally, as when you're a little baby, you smile at the baby, and the baby smiles back at you. It's it's learning what it means to be human. It. I shouldn't refer to the baby as it, but I'm being non-gender specific. Come up with better language. Um, You know, so so a small baby, a small child is is learning through mirroring what it means to be self in relationship with other. Um, And this is about our emotional self as well. It's uh, what it means to sense, what it means to be. and so we move beyond this base animalistic desire, which is just survival. Human beings are not just only, you know we're not just creatures interested in surviving uh, the current wildness of the world until tomorrow, and then we'll live to fight another day, although sometimes life does get reduced down to that at some level. Um, but we actually develop uh, emotional relationship and dependence upon one another. We actually build our own sense of self in dialogue, if you like, with the people that are around us, right? So you aren't just you in isolation. You are you as a product of both the emerging you in embedded within a community of other people who shape you and inform you, your parents and your peers uh, and everything that's around you, right? If you put a little kid down and they just hang, we've got some friends who've got two little dogs, uh, uh, cavalier Cav- Cavoodles, Spoodles, I don't know, something oodles. Uh, Very friendly little dogs. And you watch the little two-year-old who's, because the dogs are really the one that's at his level, you know, Uh, and he spends a lot of time with the lark of oodles there. He just, he starts to crawl around. He starts to, to woof as well, and he joins in the fun. I'm not saying the child is becoming a dog, but you can see it's, those are its peers at that time. And so it's like, oh, I, maybe I get down on the, in the mix and I, and I run around the, the lounge on all fours and I, and I roof and I bark, right? I roof, is that what? Woof, I think it's woof. Uh, so anyway, we're developing our sense of self in relationship to others. If you're wondering where this is going and how we end up with the Eucharist, then just bear with me, all right? So uh, humans experience community and relationship in really unique and profound ways. We develop culture. Uh, all sorts of stuff takes place in human societies that that doesn't really take shape in the same kind of way within the animal kingdom, for example. Um, Now, this can be really positive. So we respond to each other in really what we would call human ways, right? We love one another, we develop commitment to one another, we embrace one another. Even our ability to innovate, to technologically advance, all of that comes from our perception of what it is that other people need and want and then mirroring that back in ourselves and what can we create that might meet the needs that we see in others. And so human society and culture moves forward and we develop beautiful communities and and families and societies filled with creativity and wonder and it's beautiful. Maybe in that sense, from a Christian perspective, the language we give to that is to be created in the image of God. You know, There's something distinct about this human experience. Um, but what we also find is that it can operate in quite a negative sense. So we also, unlike many other animals, become quickly fearful of others, suspicious of others, because now I'm not just thinking about what you're doing. I'm thinking about your motives for what you're doing. What's going on inside you that made you just walk past me when I was standing over there before, you know? You just walked straight past me. Now, for you, it might have been because you were going to get a cup of tea. And, but I might say, well, actually, I, I don't think they, they like me. I think that's what, I think that was their way of making a statement. Uh, so I start to think about what's going on inside you and about your motives, and I get a bit of distrust. Then you react to that, and you like, oh, he's been a bit standoffish, a bit too cool for school now that he's up the front with a microphone. Um And so, and then we, we what humans do is we have a a unique capacity to spiral into into discord and ultimately into um, what it means is anger and fear can spread really, really quickly in human community. And violence then can take place and violence among humans can spiral out of control. So generally, again, within animal kingdoms, you don't have... Um, all-out war, you know, you don't sort of have all of the antelopes lining up on this side and, and all of the buffalo on this side and they all decide it's a showdown at five and they all meet across the plains. And uh, Now there's some tussles, right, for survival and so on, but you don't have the kind of spiral of violence that you have within the possibility for within human communities. So humans have this unique capacity to create and to embrace and to love and to commit and to innovate, but we also have this unique capacity to um, to become fearful, angry, to destroy. Um, so somebody uh, in your tribe, maybe in your village, um, is out for a walk and gets mistaken for a something and gets an accidental attack from the neighbouring village uh, and you decide that was an intentional attack and so then you decide you've got to retaliate, but you've got to retaliate stronger than they, did to you. So then things spiral very, very quickly. And before you know it, you've got um, whole villages being wiped out by other villages and so on. Yeah? This this spiral of violence can, can happen really quickly. And really, it's probably true that in some sense, at least, this is some of what the Christian tradition is getting at with the word sin. So this human capacity for beauty and embrace and community and inclusion is really profound and extraordinary, and at the same time, what comes with that is this, this capacity for, for spiralling violence and chaos. All right? Sounds good? Sounds like a mixture? Um, now, the problem with the contagiousness of violence is that it can actually threaten to wipe out human communities entirely uh, if it gets out of hand. And so what Gerard suggests is that humans develop some ways, and uh, usually subconsciously, of... How can we limit the damage? How can we kind of end the spiral of violence? And so one of the ways that commun- human communities have developed to do this is to direct and channel all of their violence and hatred and fear or suspicion or anger. It's not always physical violence, but it's to direct all of that towards someone or someones in particular who can become the, uh, let's use the word scapegoat, because that's the, the kind of word we get from the, the, Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew tradition, become the scapegoat, for the sake of the community. Um, so we get this practice of, of scapegoating. Some, we've got a problem in the community, right? We've got some issues. Uh, who's to blame for the issues that we've got? Uh, because if we don't find someone in particular we can all agree on to blame, then we're all just going to keep blaming each other and we're going to obliterate one another. So let's centre our, let's, let's get it out of ourselves, because obviously not me, for starters, that's an important thing to note. I'm not to blame because I'm a good person with a great heart, right? You know, like David, a man after God's own heart. Um, so it's obviously not me, um, but it's somebody is the problem here, and we need to figure out who that is. And if we can, if the more of us that can agree who the problem is, the more easily we can deal with the problem, and then we can have peace, right? And so what happens over time is that this ritual within religious communities develops into sacrifice. So sacrifice is something that's found all across the ancient world. It's not just in the book of Leviticus in, in the Bible, right? It's, uh, it's an ancient practice in civilization. And it looks different in different places. They have different rituals around it, different temple practices, different things that they would sacrifice, and the sacrifices meant different things. But in many respects... Uh, what they're doing is that over time they've taken the channeling of energy maybe towards a particular group, and then they've they've ritualised it so that it becomes sacrifice. Many communities had practices of human sacrifice, for example. So you know if you've watched, I'm sure there's there's a few films made in the 80s with with um, sort of uh, probably scapegoating uh, non-western cultures, non-western nations. A, a, a non-Western ancient cultures by, you know, the symbol of the the virgin woman being tossed into the volcano type idea, right, to, to sort of bring peace to the community. We've got a problem but we've developed a ritual for settling the problem and creating peace and stability in our time. Peace in our time. Uh, and so it might be the sacrifice of, of the young woman or it might be the sacrifice of the young child. Um, one of the gods talked about in, in the Old Testament scriptures uh, in a neighbouring uh, empire, the detestable god Molech, for example, who, the statues they would heat up and then they would, uh, the statue of Molech would have its hands extended and they would heat the statue until it was scalding and then you would have to go and place your child on the arms of the statue and then for the sacrifice to really work, you had to display no emotion as your, as your child died. Now, that sounds crazy, right? And horrendous, which it is, both of those things. But it obviously functioned for them in some kind of way, otherwise you'd never do it, right? And so they had come to this point where this is the way in which we, we externalise and deal with our potential and capacity for destruction and violence. It doesn't always work, of course, but that's what they're trying to do. This is a cherry tale that one I told. <laughs> Really pepped up the crowd, didn't it? Um, And ultimately, what what this is all about is trying to create peace, you know, of a kind. Let's make things okay again. Um, and, And I think what really works, what makes a really good sacrifice is that sacrifice is unable to fight back in some kind of way. So you don't want to sacrifice, you don't want to pick on a person or a minority or a group who are popular enough that they might actually further exacerbate the violence problem you have in the community, right? So they need to be weak enough that um, you can pour out your anger on them, externalise it, and uh, you're not going to have any problems doing that. You don't want problems created. Uh, so you had ancient Greek cities, for example, who kept captives and criminals in lock up. They had no friends, no family, that kind of thing. Locked up, and just in case they needed some extra sacrifices, they could always whip out a criminal or, so, or two. Uh, to offer to the gods, right? Yeah, amazing. Um, And then in some communities, there's the development of animal sacrifice along with that. So it's not just all human sacrifice. Sometimes it was also the burning of crops to appease the gods as well. Uh, But a lot of animal sacrifice, the animals bear the sins of the people, right? So it's functioning in that same kind of way. We are putting all of our evil upon the animal and then the animal takes the punishment that we should really get in some kind of way and, and that ritually cleanses us. Um, and if you develop a really good religion around that, then it kind of hides what you're sort of doing. really. Okay, you with me? Yeah. This is interesting because we're gathered around a table here, you'll know, with, with the Eucharist, which is a sacrificial table. Right, It's a table that's centred around body and blood, broken and shed, right? So what is that even, like, how do we deal with that and how do we make sense of that? Um, so if you feel like, you know, sacrifice and scapegoating is not like a cheery topic, uh, sorry. <laughs> um, no, it is somehow paradoxically good news, which we're going to get to. So in the modern world then, so that's the ancient world, right? You've got all of that going on in the ancient world. In the modern world, we don't really buy into all of that anymore. As I said before, we don't really buy into the sacrificial myths in the same kind of way. Um, And so we feel much more civilised because we don't do those primitive things that people used to do back then. What the last 100 to 150 years has showed us, though, is that our level of civilization, while we might not... uh, Here's the beautiful thing about the way scapegoating works, right? You never think you're doing it. That's the beauty of the mechanism. So you can look at other people and see them doing it and be like what are these crazy people doing? Don't they know that's terrible? So we can look at ancient societies and they sacrifice animals or people or whatever and we're like, ah, it's terrible. But when we do it, uh, we're blind to the way we do it. Otherwise it wouldn't work. If you know you're doing it, if you're like, right, I'm going to take this really innocent person and, uh, and we're going to direct all of our anger and violence towards this person, even though they don't deserve it. And... Um, and that way, when we kill them, it'll make us all get along better. Um, if you if you're like if you're literally going through the process like that, it actually doesn't work anymore. You've got to be kind of blind to the system yourself. And so, you know, we could uh, so even though modern modern people, uh, maybe we could start with kind of pre-modern people, but we still have this capacity to scapegoat quite intensely. This is a little uh, artistic work from the the Salem witch trials. I studied uh, the. The play, uh, The Crucible, at school, Jacinda Ardern played the leading lady, it's true. Abigail, the witch on trial there in the pulpits, make of that what you will. No, <laughs> jokes, <laughs> jokes, guys. Oh, no scapegoating of Jacinda Ardern, please, good Moronsville person, um, as am I, obviously. Uh, <laughs> So if you don't know anything about the Salem Witch Trials, uh, you know young women accused of witchcraft and, so on. and this was not just a practice in Salem, Massachusetts, but all around the kind of Western world. The killing of these young women uh, is a way of kind of uh, directing the anger and violence and suspicion that was in communities um, towards some people. Um, we have more recent, pretty uh, obvious scapegoating in Nazi Germany, for example, uh, where Germany was experiencing all kinds of political, social, economic volatility and depression and struggle uh, post-World War I. Um, And to be honest, it's really difficult to try and grapple with the complexity of all of that and try to make sense of your reality and say, OK, the reason I'm in the situation I'm in is because we, kind of, we were involved in starting another war and then afterwards these countries grouped together and then there was a peace accord that was signed but then the reparations that we had to pay to them and then, uh, and, and then that's kind of spiralled downwards into more, and now we've got serious inflation and we've got all these problems. That's a lot to kind of deal with if you're the person experiencing serious inflation and, and all of those problems. So what's much easier to do is to be like, who's to blame for this? Right, let's find a group uh, who we can direct our anger towards. And and in, in Nazi Germany, there was a good old sort of distorted version of the Christian religion, which helped them along the way in their scapegoating of the Jewish people, right? So the Jews became the problem. They are the ones who've caused everything to be the way it is. And then in other parts of the world, you had... Our friend Joseph Stalin, not our friend. Uh, shouldn't say that. Our friend Joseph Stalin, comrade. Our comrade. Thank you. That's much better. Use the appropriate language, please, Michael. Um, the great purges. You know, where, where um, across the, the communist Russia. You know, at, at least, at least on the purges, about twenty million people were were executed. Again, systemic violence instituted within a society as a way of kind of keeping the peace, right? People had quotas, they had to go into communities and had 10,000 on their quota, they had to purge. Um, So, serious, serious problems, um, apartheid, um, and other mechanisms that are based on race, for example, that take a less powerful racial minority. And they become the scapegoat. They become the dirty, unclean one who's the cause of the kind of problems that we have. These are a pretty serious example. Sam gave you, like, the, the the funny ones earlier. And then I just escalated the situation. Um, from Wayne Barnes to Hitler. We've gone up a notch. All right. Uh, and, and even uh, putting up Trump before, right, which got a few boos, he can become kind of, in some sense, become a scapegoat, but he also he understands the mechanism of scapegoating pretty well himself. So Mexicans, for example, even though you could look at all the research and say, actually, the largest proportion of people coming across the border are not Mexican at all. They're actually from other countries, or um, and they're not all rapists and murderers, but that's the way he framed it, you know, because essentially what he's employing there is, is an effective strategy for people who are experiencing turmoil. Uh, it's how am I going to understand globalisation, the changing economic times, the, what technology is doing to industry, uh, the coming robotics revolution and how that's going to change uh, um, automation and what that means for my um, job at the factory. Um, tell you what's a much easier thing to understand and that's the Mexicans are doing it. Um, so uh, to, us, you know, to, to, to some of us, we can look at that from the outside and say, that's crazy. But in the system, you become blind to it, which is why you think you should just be able to go to someone and say, hey, look, did you know that's not the problem? And then they'll be like, oh, thanks for telling me. Now I know it's not the problem. I'll do some research on the real problem. That's not the experience you have with someone who is embedded within that narrative because they've convinced themselves of a narrative that helps them to externalise the the violence and, and, and the fear and suspicion that they've got going on internally. You still with me? Okay, we're going to get to Jesus soon. All right. So, um, so what can we say? Let's uh, let's jump ahead a little bit. So, even though we might not sacrifice animals and humans in the same literal kind of ritualistic way that that we used to in primitive societies, we've still got the same kind of system that functions in a different kind of way now. Uh, now, what Rene Girard says or suggests is there's actually one particular uh, narrative and religious system that is unique in the sense that it's built entirely around the identity and the life of the innocence of the scapegoat. It's from the scapegoat's perspective rather than from the, scape, the, the powerful scapegoaters' perspective, if that makes sense. And that's the story of Christianity. So, Jesus, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, Jesus is a problem, right, in the first century for people. Uh, for religious people, for political people, for all sorts of people, Jesus is a problem. And so really what should have happened is that he gets crushed by that system uh, as a scapegoat for, other, for for their own internal thing. Uh, and then we never hear about that again. And yet somehow Christianity tells its story from the perspective of the scapegoat. The central figure of our story is the scapegoat rather than the, than the power. Does that make sense? All right. So let's, let's think about the Christian story a little bit um, briefly before we come to a break. Um, but even in the Old Testament, there's some suggestions that the sacrificial mechanism is not all it's cracked up to be, right? So even very early on, you get, uh, oh, I've said that already. Here we go. Um, this is the story of Abraham and Isaac, right? Um, which I grew up, Reading and being like, Abraham, oh man, such a faithful guy. The way he's just willing to sacrifice his son on the altar like that. Man, love that Abraham. Um, <laughs> now, that should make us, a, like, it doesn't often because we're so immersed in that narrative. But that should actually make you a little bit squeezy. Like, oh, really? Uh, is that is that a great thing, um, Abraham? Um And yet what the story does in this unique twist is surrounded by societies where human sacrifice and sacrificing your children was common practice. The story of Abraham and Isaac is one where they go up to the mountain and then God intervenes and says, no, do not kill your son. I do not want the sacrifice of your child. Um, So um, even in this very primitive story in the Old Testament, this very early story, there's this, Underside to the story that's saying, hey, maybe there's something else going on here. Maybe this God doesn't want your children as sacrifices. All right. Uh, then we've got the, the prophetic criticism of some of the sacrificial rituals. So even though there's this whole elaborate way of sacrificing that's developed in the Old Testament, uh, later on, many of the prophets um, critique it. They criticise it. So Amos, for example, says, I hate, this is, he's speaking for for God here. I hate, I despise your festivals and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take me away from the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Uh, And so the the prophets, and there's a number of examples in the the Old Testament prophets where they look at the sacrificial system and they say, actually, uh, elsewhere, God doesn't need your sacrifices. Uh, What he wants is justice. Uh, What he wants you to do is start treating people differently. Um, So there's this one level of the story going along here nicely and then there's this undercurrent in the story as well which is saying we need to be thinking a bit more about some of this. Cool? Yeah. Um, So then we come to the story of Jesus, which I mentioned briefly before. So we've got Jesus who is really initially, and if you just read the Gospels, if you just start with the Gospels, Jesus is a sacrifice, but not really to God. Jesus is sacrificed to restore order. Like we've got a problem, we've got this guy, he's gathering a following, which is disrupting and disturbing the religious system. He's rejecting the temple practices. He's not following all of the right rules and regulations around things. Uh, He's offering forgiveness outside of the sacrificial system. So religiously, we need to deal with Jesus. Um, And politically, you've got a guy who people are calling their king, gathering a following of thousands of people with an empire that's trying to keep all of its various tentacles of the empire under control. Uh, and so Jesus is sacrificed to restore peace, to put things back to the way they were before, before we had this disruption. Things are getting unsettled and we've got a problem. We're going we're gonna to kill Jesus and that will make it all go away. Yeah? Okay. So um, what we could say then is in a paradoxical way or somehow by, by flipping the idea of sacrifice on its head, Jesus doesn't save us because God needed the blood of an innocent victim. Um, but um, Haim says this, it is God alone who can reveal the entire reality of the sacrificial process, reverse through resurrection its obliteration of victims and structure an alternative option for human solidarity, yeah. Um, so what you find is in the Jesus story, the problem with killing Jesus in the Jesus story is that uh, Jesus apparently does not stay that way, right? And and so the one they've punished as the enemy of God, they see Jesus as the you know that's why I say on the boomometer. Jesus was an enemy of God. right? He's an enemy of the state and he's an enemy of God and he's an enemy of the church, if you like, they weren't using that language, obviously it's the Jewish system, but he was an enemy of the Jewish religion as it was it, to, to certain leaders within that system. And so we need to kill him, make it all go away. They kill Jesus, um, but then there's this resurrection motif that emerges whereby he seems to come back. And what you find is that somehow the divine, somehow God is present in the scapegoat that they were all convinced was the problem. They kill Jesus as an enemy of God and it turns out that there's there's God in the one they were killing. Make sense? Um, and so in the Gospels, Jesus returns from death and, and into the rest of the New Testament, not with anger and retributive violence. So he doesn't come back from the dead and say, well, now that I've got that out of the way, let's get cracking and I'm going to take my vengeance. Uh, he comes and he says, peace be with you. Now, sometimes we kind of read that quite shallowly. Oh, peace. That's nice. Thank you, Jesus. Um but think about the kind of human condition that Jesus is speaking into in his proclamation is peace be with you. He forgives those who are murdering him while he's on the cross. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And then he continues to suggest that the new path um, is one of forgiveness. So in the let me just read this last little bit and then we can have a break because I think we're ready for one. You are ready for one? Yeah, I thought so. Uh, in the crucifixion, we see plainly the full implications of human sin, violence, the killing of the innocent, and the scapegoating. Jesus bears the weight of our sin and yet offers us forgiveness, a forgiveness we're invited to receive, to participate in, and to go on offering to others. Jesus says, you're reconciled with God, reconcile with each other. Uh, Daniel Migliore says this, that God raised the crucified Jesus and made him the chief cornerstone of a new humanity that no longer espouses the way of violence, that no longer needs scapegoats, that no longer wills to live at the expense of victims, that no longer imagines or worships a bloodthirsty God that is no longer interested in legitimations of violence, but that follows Jesus in the power of a new spirit. (sighs) So, we're going to take a short break to go, wow, that was some dense stuff. Uh, and then what we're going to do is come back. Uh, I'm going to throw a couple of thoughts up uh, for us to then have some, some discussion. And then we're going to centre ourselves back around the Eucharist as we bring it to a conclusion. Cool? Okay. So a cup of tea, five minutes, and then we'll, uh, we'll bring it back through. All right. You'll feel uh, rejuvenated, replenished, restored, refreshed. Something like that. Um, so I just want to continue with a couple of thoughts around this and then let, let's let have a little time of discussion. I guess uh, one of the things maybe you're picking up as we go along here is that there are a couple of ways to read the Jesus story in terms of sacrifice. And one is to say, well, the reason all of those sacrifices didn't work in ancient societies is not because there was a problem with the mechanism, but because none of the sacrifices were good enough. And so what was needed was just a really, 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 really good sacrifice to solve the problem, right? That's, that's one way of kind of reading the Christian story. And so because Jesus was the best, bestest, most innocentest, most divine uh, sacrifice possible, uh, Jesus could be the best one ever, now, or we could see the Jesus story as somehow revealing a problem with the mechanism itself, uh, and and somehow through entering into it to overturn it. Uh, and so that's what I'm I'm offering you that way of seeing it for us to then think about and wrestle with and what that might offer to us. Um, so we finish with this quote from Migliore: uh, "This idea that uh, Jesus' resurrection symbolizes." Uh, this new way of being in the world—it's uh, a different way of seeing, of thinking about God. It's a different way about thinking about our relationships to one another. Um, a different way to think about what it means to be human in the light of God. And so we have this Jesus, who's murdered, executed, killed as the scapegoat, as the sacrifice. I uh, think about Paul when he's—his name is Saul. He's in the book of Acts. And he is uh, on the road to Damascus and he has this encounter, uh, he says, with Christ where this light, bright light shines. And he hears the words and he says, "Who is?" he's he's a bit confused by what's going on because he's been going around killing Christians. So Saul has been like, we've still got to, okay, we killed Jesus. We thought that was going to settle things down. Unfortunately, now we've got people going around saying they follow this Jesus and they are still causing problems. Solution? Just keep killing. Right? That's that's Saul's or slash Paul's like solution to the problem. Just keep getting rid of them until they're all gone. Uh, And then he has this encounter on the road to Damascus and Jesus says, uh, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. Jesus is still identifying with the scapegoat victims here, even beyond, the, beyond his death and, and rising. Right? Or uh, also in the book of Acts, you have Stephen, who's the first uh, recorded martyr for the Christian faith. So he's following Jesus. Uh, and he, he says to them this, <laughs> to, the, to some of the religious folk, who obviously are pretty keen on killing some of the Christians. You stiff-necked people... Uh, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit just as your ancestors used to do. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the righteous one and now you have become his betrayers and murderers. Right? So here Stephen, in light of the story of Jesus, is saying the system's been exposed. Right? Because uh, actually we read the prophets and we go, good guys, those prophets. What was the response to the prophets at the time? <laughs> chuck them in a well, stick them down there for a few years, reject them, try and kill them, push them out. Uh, and so Stephen connects the like, site. this is what we do. But Jesus is exposing the system. Now, what's their response to Stephen uh, saying, hey, the system has been unveiled. They cover their ears, the text says, and then they stone them to death. Right. So... It's a pretty intense. Pretty intense response. Um, Stephen actually has this beautiful mirroring of Jesus' moment here, where as he's being stoned to death, he says, "Lord, do not hold this sin against them." It's very reminiscent of Jesus' words on the cross. Right? Uh, Hebrews says that the that the blood of animals could never actually put you right with God. Uh, it was always just to make you feel better. That's essentially what a big bunch of Hebrews are saying. It's for your. It was for your conscience. But Jesus has put an end to that system now. He's become the one to end all sacrifice. Um, Hebrews actually says that, uh, he says that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So if you go back to the story of Abel and Cain, right back in Genesis, yeah? Adam and Eve, they have a situation. And then they have some children who also have some situations. Uh, Cain and Abel, jealous, anger, hatred, Spiral of violence, Cain kills Abel. Cain's, Abel's like the first scapegoat in that kind of story, right, where he's killed because somehow Abel's the reason why Cain's life is not going the way it should be. Uh, and, and the blood of Abel, the, the Torah says, cries out from the ground for vengeance, you know. Uh, but Hebrew says Jesus' blood offers a better word than the blood of Abel. So Jesus' blood that has been shed as he's been murdered, like Abel was murdered, Jesus' blood does not cry out vengeance. Jesus' blood cries out forgiveness and reconciliation. Um, let's just show the system for what it is and the kind of God revealed in that story is one who says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Um, and so towards the end of Hebrews, which is a, it's a, it's a, it's a quite a piece of work, the old Hebrews book, um, people are still trying to figure out exactly what it's on about at times. Uh, it's very complex. But there's this beautiful, um, oh yeah, I said that, tonight. not I? Good. Um, beautiful little phrase here where, where the author of Hebrews, and you actually see this in Paul's language as well, flips the idea of sacrifice around entirely. So sacrifice has no longer come to mean for them killing the innocent to appease God and bring the peace. But here, this is the kind of sacrifice pleasing to God. If we're going to use sacrifice language, then this is the kind of sacrifice God wants. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Um, it's a total upturning uh, of what is even meant by sacrifice itself. And sometimes we actually now use sacrifice much more in this way in the Christ- because of the Christian tradition. So even if this is a different way for you to think about Jesus' death, you actually already use the word sacrifice differently than, than you would have without the Christian story because you say things like, you sacrificed your time. Now, you don't mean you took your time, you put it on the altar and you cut it and killed it. and Metaphor wouldn't work for starters. But also, that's, you're, you're actually using the word with a different definition uh, because of the way in which the New Testament talks about language of sacrifice. So it's there, it's just sometimes we don't see it and sometimes we don't then apply it to the story of, of Jesus himself. So I want to put up this, uh, well, there's this book here. Uh, if, you, if you're if you like, man, I would like to read a theological book on this issue. If you're that kind of person, then this is, oh, it's, this is Inception, it's up there and over here. Saved from Sacrifice, this is, uh, Theology of the Cross by Mark Heim. It's a, it's a wonderful book. Uh, and it works its way through all sorts of um it, it goes in depth into Scripture. So if you're thinking, I want to make some sense of some particular Scriptures, then it's a great book to, to wrestle with. Uh, going right back even to the book of Job and the way Job is unveiling the scapegoating mechanism uh, as the most ancient book in, this, in the Bible. Um, here's a quote from Mark Himes' book here, uh, which we're going to use as the basis for some reflection. Is this God's plan? to become a human being and die so that God won't have to destroy us instead. Is it God's prescription to have Jesus suffer for sins he did not commit so God can forgive the sins we do commit? That's the wrong side of the razor. thinking about a double-edged razor here. Jesus was already preaching the forgiveness of sins and forgiving sins before he died. He did not have to wait until after the resurrection to do that. Blood is not acceptable to God as a means of uniting human community or a price for God's favour. Christ sheds his own blood to end that way of trying to mend our divisions. Jesus' death isn't necessary because God has to have innocent blood to solve the guilt equation. Redemptive violence is our equation. Jesus didn't volunteer to get into God's justice machine. God volunteered to get into ours. God used our own sin to save us. All right. That's a potent idea. I think, and beautiful and good news and really compelling and has direct impact on how we actually see our own lives and the way we live in the world and the way we relate to God. What I'd love to, us to do for a few minutes and, and to do this with the people that are maybe immediately in your vicinity, if you don't mind talking to them. And if, if you do, you can always try and really um, subtly move next to some people you do want to talk to. But generally, talk to the people around you uh, and I want you to ask this question before we have Eucharist uh, as a way of finishing tonight. How might this idea reshape the way we think about the Eucharist table? Cool? That's our conversation. So uh, if you're like, whoa, 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 well, then it's a good place to start a conversation. Try that and see, see what someone says back. Um, all right. So we'll do this for a few minutes and then we're going to uh, finish together. Cool. Go to it. All right. How you all going? Um, the great news is, the great news is now we've figured all of this out. So that's uh, that's answered all our questions, and we can uh, we can now move on with this Jesus story summarised. Um, look, my, my hope is that this conversation opens us up a little bit to some ways of thinking about the Jesus story that might be a bit provocative, that might make, make us think. Not just so that we can be like, ooh, aren't we interesting thinking about interesting things? Um, because there's not much point to that. Um, but that actually this cuts right to the heart of what we think about God, what we think about... Uh, humanness and our own self and our identity uh, and our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. It sits right at the heart of that whole story. But this um, Easter story, this Eucharist table, uh, continues to bring us back to it. uh, Time after time, for now 2,000 years, for Christians to gather around and be like, how does this story really matter? Why does it matter and how does it transform me? Um, so what we're going to do, um, this is a conversation I think that needs to just keep unfolding. Um, and in two weeks time, we are having a session uh, basically called What is the Gospel? So in light of some of what we've been talking about then, uh, not just tonight, but also uh, for some of you have been to some of the other formations already, um, what is it that we say about the Christian Gospel in light of all of this, um, because it takes a takes a bit of working through to, to, to hear some things in a fresh way or from a different angle, from a different perspective and to have them start to sit with you a little more comfortably, especially if there's just, there's songs, there's words, there's prayers, there's patterns of thinking that are woven very much into the fabric of us that takes take a little while for us to reflect on. Yeah? All right. Um, let me say a few things about because for sake of time what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to go into some um Renée's been preparing food at the back which is wonderful so we're actually going to bring the food forward tonight and have it around here so as a part of uh, having the bread and the wine or some juice if that is what you should have um we're also going to just uh, have some dinner as well uh and just sit and eat together in light of the story that we've been just thinking about take the bread and the wine together um, as a part of the sacred Christian tradition. Uh, before we do that, I want to put up just a few thoughts that emerge for me as I think about the Eucharist table in this way, and then we'll share it together. Is that cool? Yeah. Although I know there's lots more richness and discussion and questions still boiling away under the surface for, for many of us, and that's okay. That's, like, that's part of this journey of following Christ. It's not always a neatly packaged um, solution that you can just then tuck in your back pocket and walk away with. It's got to keep prompting you to reflect. So here's a few things I want to suggest to you. I think one of the things that when I come around the Eucharist table is that I am given a renewed awareness of the human possibilities of what Scripture calls sin, what we might call dehumanisation, we might call our, our... Our fear and distrust of one another, and our extraordinary potential to damage our relationships with each other and to spiral out of control. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So that's like, it's not the happy side of the equation, but it's, um, I'm reminded of that in the Christian tradition, that I have that capacity. It's not just that person out there, it's not just Harvey Weinstein who has that capacity, Um, I have it also. Uh, but that Jesus identifies with the victims of our communal violence and of our exclusion. Jesus is the one executed outside of the city uh, and left there. Right. Um, Jesus bears the weight of our sin. That's the, the kind of New Testament language for it in suffering it and experiencing it. Um, but in doing so, some of the sins that Jesus bears, he, he exposes and names in particular ways. So one of the things he does a lot is expose things as broken that formed the very fundamental, fundamental ways in which people thought about religion and God. So excluding certain people from the community in order to keep it holy and pure, Jesus kept naming and exposing that practice of exclusion, which everybody thought was the right religious thing to do for God. But Jesus says, this very thing that you think is the right religious thing to do for God, I'm going to perhaps suggest to you that it's part of the problem. Uh, And uh, our practice of sacrificing and scapegoating others as to externalise our own issues is another thing that Jesus names and exposes. And resurrection, and it's the symbol of this new life that we see in Christ, uh, reminds us that God is present in the life of the excluded and of the scapegoat, that the scapegoat in this story turns out to be uh, where the divine is found. So if you think about the ancient Israelite story, if we're using that metaphor of the scapegoat, all the sins are put on the goat, the goat is sent away, and then suddenly they all realise the goat is God. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of the way that the story goes. And so the bread and wine are symbols of the end of victimisation and of an invitation to a new way of being in the world. It sees God differently. that sees other people differently. It says there is a different way to live in the world that does not have to be a spiral into fear and distrust and blame and anger and outrage, although we love a good bit of outrage. And it does not have to be a scapegoating mechanism where we just pick on a group of people to persecute, to make ourselves feel better. In fact, there's a new way of being that's offered to us here. Uh, and it's offered at the table, and it's a way of forgiveness and reconciliation. Just getting a FaceTime, guys. Don't worry about that. Probably, probably decline that. It's like this. It sound, sounds familiar. That little tune. Uh, um, who was it? Yeah, that's. It's the lesson to take away from tonight. My level of popularity. It was my sister-in-law. Uh, okay, there you go. What a what a note to end on. Um, there's something really beautiful about the table and its simplicity, the fact that it formed uh, a big part of m- meals together in the early church where they sat and they ate together. It wasn't just little little nibbles of bread and little tiny miracle glasses that only churches have, which fit all this tiny amount of juice in it. Um, you know, it was meal together, it was reconciling meals, it was meals where the slaves were suddenly invited in to eat with the wealthy, where the women who used to not be allowed in to mingle with the important conversation the men were having, the uh, first century, uh, were now invited and were an equal part in sharing in the table. And the whole system is upended and they all eat and drink together. In a new way of being human with one another, cool. The white no I'm sorry, we don't have yeah, no white starch today. I'm sure he did. Um, so uh, we've got some food that's down there. Is that coming up here? Yeah, it's coming up here. And um, I'm just going to pray. Do you think we should stand? Is that too formal? Now let's stand, symbolically, as a way of kind of entering into this story. Um, I'm just going to pray, and then you are welcome to just come and grab some bread. There's some oils and some dukkah to, to dip your breads in. There's some wine, shiraz, uh, and some juice. And then there's also um, a pot and some rice and some food. Char-char- what is it? chickpea curry, chala masala. Um, So you're welcome to partake of any and all all, all of it. Um, Not you, all of it, you know what I mean. Uh, uh, And then we can just hang around and just eat and drink together. Um, Once you've come and taken your bread and your meal and your wine, you don't have to wait for the holy blessing. You are welcome to just share with one another. Cool? So I'm going to pray and then we'll do it. God, uh, thank you for this reminder that you are not a bloodthirsty deity demanding yet more from us. Uh, you're, we are not sinners in the hands of an angry God, um, but somehow our faith and our journey and our pilgrimage is centred around this reminder that uh, you experience the full weight of what we are able to do in a negative sense and somehow use it to transform us and to call us into a new way of being in the world. So as we take this bread and this wine and as we eat and drink together, uh, may this be a small step in us becoming new kinds of humans. May this be just a moment in time where we see you in new ways and think about what this might mean for our lives. And the way we treat one another in Jesus name amen amen, amen. all right so uh, come eat and drink don't be shy um, participate and um, what we normally do is we normally have the food up the back and so you you give a little koha in exchange for that but you're welcome to just come and eat and drink and then on your way out if you if you're able to just we usually say a gold coin or something like that just to honor the resources that went into it. That'd be cool. All right? Okay. Bless your lives. Eat and drink.